0: take your Bibles um, and read with me the first six verses of Galatians chapter 5. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Let's pray. Let's look at this text. God, you are a God who has given us great salvation and grace freely offered in Christ Jesus. We pray that you'd guide our hearts and our minds as we think and study and look at these words that communicate this grace through your word tonight. We pray that our hearts and our minds would be given a sense of of the freedom and the joy and the hope and the confidence that we have when we understand the free grace we have in Christ Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen. Here in chapter 5, Paul is jumping off on, on the, the theme of freedom. And in, in we look at these first few words, you see freedom mentioned and multiple times sort of ringing out of this text. And if we could look at this text and in, in the Greek together, I think this theme of freedom would sort of punch us or come out at us even, even more strongly. The, the first phrase in Greek is only four words and two of them or the verb and noun form of the word for freedom. Um, you, you could sort of translate literally this, this Greek phrase something like, for freedom Christ freed you. And free and, and freedom are, are sort of the, the, the defining characteristic, the, the key theme of this, this phrase, this opening phrase of this chapter. Paul wants to communicate this freedom that we have in Christ in, in the strongest way possible. He could say it perhaps this way, freedom in this first phrase defines both what Christ did for us and his goal in doing so. Christ came setting us free in order to set us free, is almost what Paul is saying here. Perhaps another way to, to talk about what Paul is doing in this opening phrase is to say that freedom is one of the definitive descriptions of what it means for us to be in Christ, when we are in Christ, there is a freedom, a, 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 a de- definition of being free that is true of us that was not true before. Freedom. Now, it should come as no surprise to us, of course, that, that this opening phrase is fairly popular right now. Everyone loves freedom. Freedom is, is something that everyone would latch onto, to. And, and for freedom, Christ came to set us free is, is a, a verse that would be no exception I think for those of us who are spending any time in, uh, in America or in the 21st century, we know that freedom is very popular. We know that everyone wants freedom. Free, freedom is sort of the, the, the thing that everyone is longing for and striving for. I ran across one sociologist who calls freedom the most resonant, deeply held value for all Americans. I mean, we, we certainly see that reflected in words we sing like, let freedom ring. Um, Or we we see this in in great speeches that we would know, like, free at last, free at last, thank God Almighty, free at last. And freedom sort of echoes through the great songs and speeches of our culture. As I was thinking about freedom here, I was reminded that uh, as a junior higher, sort of the the hip comeback to everything was, hey, free country. Uh, And, you know, anytime anyone would sort of, you know, come up against something or anyone would try to oppose something or give a contrary statement, hey, free country, Uh, you know, Everyone wants to be, you know, hey, it's free country, I can do what I want, you know, freedom, that's what I'm, that's what I'm going for here. Um, and so, you know, when we come to a text here and we say, hey, you know, Christ has come to set us free, give us freedom. Yeah, I'm, we're all fans of Jesus when we talk about freedom. But of course, uh, the, the whole question here, the key question is, well, what kind of freedom is it we're looking for and what does Paul mean when he says that Christ has freed us for Freedom. I think um, when we talk about freedom, usually when when we use the word freedom, we're talking about a a sense of personal freedom. We're talking about a sense of being free from restraint, free from oppression, free from boundaries, free from requirements, free let alone to do what we want. Uh, Those are generally the kinds of things we're thinking about when we think of freedom. And, you know, you sort of... Maybe, maybe you could uh, uh, sort of set it on conservative and, and, and liberal or two sides of it. And, you know, one side would say, okay, well, we want freedom. We want freedom from oppression and freedom from government and freedom from, you know, restriction. We want our rights and our freedoms. And maybe on the other side, it's, well, we want to be free to do what we want. And, you know, however, there's different sides to look at it. But freedom in our culture, te- you know, typically is a personal freedom, something we want to be free to do, free to do what I want to do and to be accepted for it. And of course, that's not exactly what Paul's talking about here. In chapter 5 of of Galatians, Paul is talking very specifically about a a context for freedom. He's talking about freedom in a very particular context here. In this passage, in in Galatians chapter 5, Paul is talking specifically about the freedom of being out from under the burden and the necessity and the yoke of having to keep the whole law in order to be accepted by God. That is the particular freedom that Paul is talking about in this chapter. When we think about the law of Moses, a a law which dictated the actions of our lives as well as the attitudes of our hearts, which sets a standard of, of, of perfection, demands obedience in order to be with God, this was a burden that none are able to keep perfectly. And of course, it's an impossible burden it's an impossible burden because no one can keep the whole law. It's also, no, it's also a burden, and the, 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 the yoke of living under the law is also a burden because of, of what it is like to live under it, because of the guilt and the questions and the wondering and the analysis that is constantly happening as we live under the law. We're always wondering, are we doing okay? Are we obeying enough? What happens if I slip up? What are the consequences if I fail in this area. It's interesting, as I read a number of commentaries on this passage, a number of, of the commentaries all looked back and quoted a, a particular uh, Jewish author from, from the New Testament time period who referred to the most laic law as the yoke of the commandments. And all of the commentators seemed to you know, imply in this that there was at least a certain sense, even within the Jewish system, that keeping the law was a yoke. There was, there was a yoke, there was a, a burden, there was a responsibility to, to being under the system of the law. I think for, for any of us who are living under a standard, it might be perhaps a, a picture that defines how we approach the law or approach keeping the law. We can look back at one of the stories from mythology of living under Damocles' sword. Maybe some of you remember the story of living under Damocles' sword. Damocles was a man in, in Syracuse who wanted to be king and was very jealous of the king Dionysius. And he said, oh, if I could be king, I would be happy like you. And Dionysius says, well, why don't you go ahead and be king for a day and and you can try it out. And so Damocles gets to be king for a day and he's enjoying himself very much until he looks up and realizes there's a sword hanging by a horse's hair over his head. And in sort of terror and dread, he turns to Dionysius and says, what's up with the sword? And Dionysius says that's what it's like to live as king, knowing at any moment that any decision you make might be the thing that ruins your reign, your kingdom, perhaps your life. And if we think about what it's like to live under the system of law-keeping. This is something of the burden that we carry, where as Paul will say and Paul has said, living under the system of the law obligates us to keep the whole law. And anyone who fails in one part of it has failed in the keeping of the whole law. And so we're living, if we are seeking to be accepted by God and through the system of keeping the law, we're living under the sword hanging by the horse's hair where any decision, any action, any, any word might be the thing that causes us to break the law. This is, this is part of the yoke of the commandments, the slavery of trying to keep the law. But Paul declares here in in chapter 5, verse 1, that Christ has come to set us free from this slavery. Here, the freedom that Paul declares is freedom from a life under this burden of keeping the law, freedom from the burden and the threat and uncertainty of knowing whether or not our hope will be dashed or destroyed by our failures or our actions, whether every deed we commit may be in jeopardy at any time. When I think of Paul's words of the freedom that we have in Christ from this burden, I think of even this morning for those of you who worshipped with us. And I think of the assurance of God's pardon that we read as a part of our worship service from Matthew 11, when Christ was, was calling to us and saying that His yoke is easy and His burden is light. He's not saying this because coming to Christ makes life easy. He's saying that He's removing this burden and this yoke and that walking in Him in Christ, frees us from this burden and the threat of being under the system of law-keeping. So here, Paul declares the freedom we have in Christ, but Paul's also quick to warn the Galatians, here in this first verse as well, that they need to stand firm in their freedom. He warns the Galatians that freedom isn't something they can take for granted. If they want the freedom that Christ came to give them, they also have to live in that freedom. Stand firm, therefore, Paul says, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. This is uh, something, you know, the idea of standing firm in freedom, and I think, is a, a concept or a, or a phrase that we're used to in, in America. You hear a lot of people talking about, you know, if you're going to be free, you need to take responsibility. You need to, to be vigilant about your liberty. And the idea of stand firm in, in our freedom is, is a concept, or at least, that we're familiar with. But what, is, what exactly does Paul mean here? What, what does it look like to stand firm? And freedom and what would it look like to submit again to a yoke of slavery? What's, what's this context saying? We want sort to of say, okay, well, here's maybe where our mind goes. What's Paul talking about here? Well, I think this is exactly what Paul spells out for us in verses 2, 3, and 4. Paul gives us an example in verses 2, 3, and 4 of what it looks like to stand firm in that freedom and what it would look like to submit again to a yoke of slavery. In verses 2 through 4, Paul argues that submitting to circumcision would be again submitting to the yoke of the law, and that this is nothing less than forsaking Christ himself for our own efforts. Let's look at these uh, verses here particularly. In verse 2, Paul looks particularly at this issue of circumcision, and he argues that if the Galatians agree again to be circumcised, or if they agree to be circumcised, they've submitted again to the yoke of slavery. Now, I can imagine, and, you know, we've done this a couple of times to sort of sit back and imagine the conversation that might be happening between Paul and, and the Judaizing, uh, the Judaizers, these Jewish Christians in, in Galatia. And I can imagine them saying, like, well, ho- hold on a second, Paul. You know, for all of history and, and throughout the whole Old Testament, circumcision was the requirement for anyone to participate in the benefits of God's people. If someone wanted to to, to participate in Passover, if someone wanted to be with with God's people, if someone wanted to participate in any of the festivals, they had to be circumcised. Circumcision was the entry sign. It was the thing that said, okay, once you've done this, now you can participate in the benefits of God's people. So you can imagine these Judaizers saying, well, hold on, Paul. Jesus clearly is a benefit of God's people. So we're just saying circumcision is still the entry sign that's necessary to participate in the benefits of God's people. And you can see sort of the certain logic that these Judaizing uh, Christians might be, might be going through. This might, in some sense, seem like a natural question, but, but Paul responds by saying, no, if we agree to be circumcised, if we look at circumcision as a necessary entry in order to come to Christ, we've actually cut the heart out of the gospel and we've missed completely what it is that Christ came to do. See, Christ christ didn 't just come to be a sort of uh, extra good sacrifice for the Israelites, so that maybe they could get back into the presence of God and continue to just live as as faithful israelites and and, and other people now can can become you know israelites too that 's not what Christ came to do. Christ came to become the access to God for all people he came to be the righteousness to fulfill all righteousness for his people, in other words. Christ's death was not just the start or not just the end, it was the beginning and the end. It was the the all, the everything of our reconciliation with God. As a result, Jew and Gentile alike, regardless of circumcision or uncircumcision, Christ is everything for Jew and Gentile alike. He is the only way, but he is also the full way back to God. And as Paul begins to play this out in these three verses, he lists three consequences for the Galatians if they agree to go ahead and be circumcised. And if you follow these verses, you'll see these three consequences. First, he says, look, if you are circumcised Galatians, Christ will be of no advantage to you anymore. This is a pretty dramatic statement. Think about what it means to talk about the advantages of Christ. What are the advantages of Christ? Well, the The advantages of Christ are are vast and immeasurable. The advantages of Christ are forgiveness of sins, guilt wiped away, eternal life, dwelling with God, reigning with Christ as co-heirs of the kingdom of God. These are the advantages of Christ. So so to say that you are without any advantage from Christ, that, that you've lost the advantages of Christ, is to say nothing less than you've lost your salvation, you've lost your hope, you've lost the forgiveness of sins that we have in Christ Jesus. And I don't know if your mind, like mine, immediately starts to wonder, well, how can this be? Circumcision is just a minor little surgery. How's this, how's this ending all of our advantages in Christ? And Paul begins to answer that in the second reason, because secondly, he says, well, if you are circumcised, Galatians, you are now obligated to keep the whole law. You see, the law is not taken piecemeal, where, where you do one part of it and, and not another, or, or you agree to live under one part, but, but then we're coming to Christ in another part. We can't, we can't divide up the law. When Paul talks about the law here, he's talking about a way of living, a pattern of living, and a way of coming to God. And so as he talks about this, he's saying either you live by the whole law and you approach God by means of the law, or you live not by the law and you approach God by means of Christ. And if the Galatians are going to go be circumcised, they're proclaiming that they still have something that they are going to do in this approach to Christ. In other words, they're still approaching Christ in this method of keeping the law. That's the way in which they're going to approach Christ. By doing circumcision, by keeping the law, rather than through Christ. And of course, if they're pursuing God through the law… They're, they're not pursuing him through Christ. You see what Paul's doing. He's drawing a dichotomy. It's one or the other, not a blend of both. And so this is, you know, he says, uh, uh, in fact, that if you uh, you, are, you are obligated to keep the law, but, but if you're obligated to keep the law in verse 4, he says, then, then you're severed from Christ. You have fallen from grace. This is a you know, statement some of us might scratch our head at. Is he's saying that you know if we go and be circumcised, then the Galatians have lost their salvation? They've they've fallen away from grace. That's a at least a, a certain a question that comes to mind. But that's not at all what Paul's saying here. He's not saying that they've lost their salvation, but that they who appeared to be confessing Christ as their only hope and who have appeared to be part of the body of Christ are actually not at all in Him. They are not in Christ. If they are attempting to come to Christ through circumcision. Maybe maybe some of you are, are thinking, like like I find myself thinking, you know, Paul, how exactly can this be true? I mean, these, these people in Galatia are people who say that they believe in Jesus. So you're saying, here are people who believe in Jesus and yet they believe, you know, they go ahead and get circumcised and, and that cuts them off from Christ? Isn't that, isn't that a bit scary that they could be confess, confessing Christ and then go do something and then suddenly it cuts them off from Christ? That it's certainly something that could, could rattle our assurance of, of what's going on here, Paul. But, but see, at stake here in Paul's example and in the Galatians' lives, at stake here is how we are coming to God and what we are relying on as we come before God. At stake here is what are we relying on to be accepted by God. And the problem for the, the Galatians isn't just the fact of circumcision, it's also why they're being circumcised. And I think this is very clear when we look at the context here and, and elsewhere. You know, for instance, you might think in Acts 16, in Acts 16, Paul has Timothy circumcised. And you think, wait a second, Paul, you just said if you go get circumcised, Galatians, you've fallen from grace. And in Acts 16, here he is in taking Timothy and getting him circumcised. You know, is this just a big contradiction? Did Paul, you know, is Paul a flip flopper? You know, what's what's going on here, Paul? Uh, but I think with, what the two contexts draw out is is the key isn't just the fact of circumcision. Because remember, Paul also said neither circumcision or uncircumcision counts for anything. The key here is why are these Galatians seeking to be circumcised? And I think in, uh, it becomes very clear in Acts sixteen, Paul takes Timothy to to circumcise him because his mother was Jewish. And he was ministering in a missionary context largely to Jewish people in order to withdraw or take away a potential stumbling block in order to make that mission effort more effective. Paul says, yes, Timothy, go ahead and be circumcised. But here in, in Galatia, it becomes clear, and I think verse 4 also makes it clear, Paul is clarifying that Galatians are considering circumcision because they think it is a necessary act for God to accept them. You see what Paul says, you are severed from Christ, who? You who would be justified by the law. You who think you can be accepted by fulfilling this part of the law, that is the reason, that's, that's the, the, the approach to God that is going to lead to condemnation, not justification. Circumcision itself means nothing either way. But if our reason, if the Galatians' reason for being circumcised is because they think it is something they should do in order to be accepted by God, then they are attempting to be justified by the law, and they have forsaken Christ and are without Christ. This gets at the key truth that we have heard, we know, and that is that Christ is all or nothing. We will either come all covered by the blood of Christ, or we will not come in Christ at all. As Phil Reichen put it, he said, to receive Christ by faith is to admit that we cannot save ourselves at all. If we will not let Christ do everything for us, he can do nothing for us when it comes to our justification. If we will not come before our God and say, God, I have nothing to offer, then Christ is of no use. And I think I can be the first to say that is a truth that we need to be reminded of. Because there are many, many times when I come and think, well, there's something I've done that surely, you know, God would like to see. There's something that, that elevates me or makes me at least someone that God would be pleased with. Or as one author I recently read said, surely God's happy to have me on his team. And These are the kinds of thoughts that creep in when we do things that we know we ought to do. And as this same author said, oftentimes our obediences can be the very context for our greatest sins when we cease to rely on Christ and Christ alone and begin to slip into some confidence in our own efforts and our own deeds. LeRoykin relates an excellent illustration of this when he mentions the story of a man several years ago who found a baseball which had been autographed by Babe Ruth. And realizing that a baseball autographed by Babe Ruth is worth several thousand dollars, the man decided to sell the baseball, but he was worried that it wasn't going to fetch as much money as it should because the signature was pretty faded. And so he decided to take a pen and trace over the Babe Ruth autograph so that it would be more bold and obviously be of more value on the market. And of course, you know as well as I do that in doing that, he obliterated the autograph and it... Took a priceless collector's item into a, a worthless baseball you could play catch with your son with. But, but see, that's what we do. That's what we do when we say, yes, Christ died and I am all in favor of Christ, but I have some things that are worthy of consideration, God. I have some things that I have done that are worthy of being noted. And as soon as we try to impose our efforts or as soon as we try to rely on something or as soon as we say, well, surely God wouldn't punish me because I've done and we put all sorts of reasons and rationalizations in that context and as soon as we do that, we are slapping ink over the blood of Christ and turning a matchless treasure into something that is utterly worthless to us if we would try to come in our own work Rather than completely and only and fully in the work of Jesus Christ, see what Paul's what Paul's saying. What Paul's saying here is that Christ and Christ alone is our hope. And if we will come in Christ and in Christ alone, He will sever us from the burden and the yoke of the, our slavery to the law. But if we will not come in Christ and in Christ alone, then we will be severed from Christ and the hope that He has for us. I think there's a few questions maybe we should, we should ask as we ap- apply this and think through this. First, we need to ask whether we really believe that God's grace to us is completely free. Do we, do we live and think out of a full belief that God's grace is free? Do I believe and trust that God's favor and God's acceptance of me is, is based only and solely on the work of Christ and his love for me through Christ? that he requires nothing from me but that I abandon myself to Christ? Do we believe that there is nothing that I can do that merits the favor of God but to throw myself on Christ? And of course, in this room, most of us are good Protestants and maybe we would even say we're good Reformed Protestants. And so, you know, of course, we proclaim these truths. We, we would say this. But but do we think and live out this statement, I believe that God's grace is free And that this free grace is my only hope and that this free grace is mine only if I completely abandon myself to the Savior, Jesus Christ. Of course, there's two challenges here. On the one hand, there's the challenge not to presume upon the grace of God regardless of what I do and without any care for how I act. No, of course, we dare not presume on the grace of God. His grace is free, but, but we do abandon ourselves to Christ. But on the other hand, the challenge is not to doubt this grace and not to live or think as if his grace is not really free. Do we, do we, do I lack a joy in Christ? Do I lack a selfless love for others? Do I lack a confident hope in Christ? I'll speak from personal experience that when I am lacking a joy in Christ and a confidence in my assurance in Christ and a full selfless love for others, very often my gaze is turned into myself and I am wondering whether I'm doing enough or whether, whether I have actually lived out how I ought to live rather than keeping my gaze fixed on a savior who died and firmly relying only on his blood as something that is given to me free out of his love for me. And I am doubting whether God could really love someone quite like me. And do I grasp that God looks on me and when he looks on me he doesn't see me, he sees Jesus? when we come to him in faith? Do I trust that God's love for me through Christ is perfect and full even when I don't think that I love myself? Do we have this kind of belief and trust and reliance on a love of God through Christ and a free grace of Christ through what he has done when we abandon ourselves to him that does not rest on what we have done? That is the great question. There's an old theologian at Princeton University, Archibald Alexander, and he said this. He said, there is so often a defect in our belief in the freeness of divine grace. To exercise unshaken confidence in the doctrine of gracious pardon is one of the most difficult things in the world. But Christians cannot help but be lean and feeble when they are deprived of this nutriment. If we will not rest on the freeness of God's grace, we cannot help but be lean and feeble, says Archibald Alexander. It is by faith that the spiritual life is made to grow. And the doctrine of free grace, without any mixture of human merit, he concludes, is the only true object of our faith. Will we believe and rest on and focus on the full, free grace of Christ without any mixture of our effort to come before God. That is what we rely on for God's acceptance. That is what we rely on when we wonder, does God love me? Will God accept me? It is the free grace in Christ. So Paul here, he's urged the Galatians towards freedom in Christ. And he's described the danger of forsaking Christ. But I want to look briefly at verses 5 and 6, where Paul turns briefly to describe true faith in Christ. Because, of course, the natural declaration, or the natural question from Paul's declaration is, well, if grace is free and I need to rely fully on the freeness of grace, what does that mean for how I live? Does that just mean, well, what I do doesn't matter? Does that mean that I don't have to obey the law anymore? I mean, I've I've been set free from the law, grace is free. What does that mean for how I act and how I live? I think in verses 5 and 6, Paul gives us four brief positive characteristics of what it looks like to stand firm in freedom through faith in Christ. Let's look at these four characteristics. First, Paul says that we in verse 5 that we come by faith. The only qualification that we should see as necessary for obtaining the benefits of Christ is our faith in Him. Of course, what then is faith, we ask. It's a word we throw around a lot. What do we mean by it? Faith means that we rely on Him and Him alone for our salvation. We are His. We have abandoned ourselves and entrusted ourselves to Him and Him alone. We have turned our lives, our hopes, our goals, ourselves to Christ Because we believe that he and he alone is our hope. That is what it means to come by faith. Second, not only do we come by faith, Paul says we come through the Spirit. We come through the Spirit. See, we have died. And we have come out from under the slavery to the law. But does that mean that the law no longer has anything to say to how we live? Well, no, no. Because the Spirit who wrote the law is now living in us when we come through the Spirit. When we come through the Spirit, the very one who wrote the law of God and delivered the law of God is now living in us. And so he is shaping us. He is shaping us to live according to the laws that he has written. The law of God still tells us what our lives ought to look like. It still tells us what... Um, are, are what it looks like to be pleasing to God. But the logic of the gospel no longer says, here is a list of commandments, now do it. The logic of the gospel is run to the Spirit, that the Spirit might change you more and more into the image of our Savior. See, no one has ever been successful at being given a list of how to live and been told to go do it perfectly. But... We no longer rely on our efforts when we come through the Spirit. We rest on the Spirit of the living God who changes us and who changes our hearts and our lives through the power of God Himself. So we come by faith. We come through the Spirit. Third, we wait for the hope of righteousness. This is such a beautiful phrase. It is an absolute truth that when we come to Christ... We fully are justified in his sight. Paul talks here about waiting for righteousness. Paul doesn't say, you've now become fully righteous. Paul doesn't say, you are now completely righteous. He says, you are waiting for righteousness. We wait for the hope of righteousness. This is, I think, such a beautiful description of the Christian life. Christian, God has not finally or fully perfected you in righteousness, He's not fully freed you from the presence of sin in your life. The battle to be righteous is very present in your life and in mine. But part of faith is to believe the promise and the work of God in Christ that he who began the work in us will complete it. To believe that in this case we are waiting, we are waiting by faith for the hope of righteousness will be fully ours when Christ returns. This commentator John Stott puts it, he says, we do not work for righteousness, we wait for righteousness by faith in the crucified Christ. We wait for righteousness. And finally, coming by faith through the Spirit, waiting for the promise of righteousness, Paul tells us that genuine faith is demonstrated when it is working in love. The best comment on this is Tim Keller who says this. He says, Faith literally energizes love. Selfishness and insecurity cannot produce love because they are concerned with ourselves while love is joyful self-giving. But faith in Christ does energize love. In the gospel, we see that Christ has died for us and valued us not for what we bring him. We are no prophet to him. We have been loved for our own sakes, for the sake of Christ. And to the degree we see that in the gospel, says Keller, we respond in kind. And so if we look at these last few verses and we say, okay, Paul has told us to stand firm in the freedom that we have in Christ and not to submit to the yoke of slavery, to believe fully in the freeness of the grace of Christ. But he concludes by telling us that when we come by faith, through the Spirit, waiting for righteousness, and a faith that works through love, We don't remain unchanged, but our lives are shaped and formed by that spirit, by that faith that we have, and that's exactly the theme that will be played out in the coming verses of this chapter. So here we are preparing to come to the Lord's table, not because we are righteous, not because we are perfect, but because we stand under the perfectly righteous blood of a Savior, fully and freely given to us, and we wait for that final hope of righteousness in him and through him alone. Let's close in prayer as we meditate on this hope that we have in Christ. God, we confess that it's so easy for us to rely on who we are or the changes that you've brought about in our life or, or the, the good things you have given us or done in us. I pray that we would not rely on any of that, but that we would rest in and rely on Jesus Christ, our perfect sacrifice in him alone for our salvation. We pray this in his name and through him. Amen.